Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership Bernard Fowler, an extraordinary singer and composer who since the late 1970s has lent his voice to a massive amount of wonderful and envelope-pushing music, and in doing so has defied his work being simply categorized. Perhaps best known for his 35-plus years recording and touring with the Rolling Stones, as well as its individual members, he has also collaborated with an incredible list of other A-list leading-edge artists. They include Bill Laswell, Material, Herbie Hancock, Lenny White, Gil Scott Heron, Sly and Robbie, Bootsy Collins, Duran Duran, Living Color, Bonnie Raitt, Alice Cooper, Willie Nelson, Herb Alpert, Yoko Ono, and many others. In addition, he's a member of the industrial funk band Tackhead and has released three solo albums of his own. The most recent, 2019's Inside Out, with which uh, deconstructs Stone's classics and deep cuts. Mm. Whoa, Bernard, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Scott. Good to see you, brother. Great to see you too, man. How are you holding right. up through everything? Oh, man. The best I can. The best I can. Like everybody else, you know, trying to stay as busy as I can. Going a little stir crazy. But, you know, trying uh, to make the best of it and not let it get to me too much. Yeah. 
Well, hang in there, like all of us. Um, yeah. The light, hopefully, is at the end of the tunnel. Yes. And, um, you know, it's just an honor to have you on. Been a fan for a long time, so really looking forward yeah, to jumping no. into it with you here. Thank you. So, you know, I understand you're from New York originally, right? Born and raised in New York City. All right. Uh, I grew up in... Uh, I grew up in Long Island City, in the Queensbridge projects. Uh, probably uh, most people would know Queensbridge uh, from Brother Nas. Nas is from Queensbridge, and you know a bunch of other folks. Uh, Mob Deep is from Queensbridge. Uh, yeah, there's a few of us. Molly Mall is from Queensbridge. Uh, Sherry Ellis, the name game. She's from Queensbridge. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's a lot of us. Sounds, sounds like you kind of led the way, though, because everyone else uh, came after you that you mentioned, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I was, yeah, maybe I was probably the first one to get out of there. <laughs> what, what drove you to uh, music uh, in the first place and, and singing? What drove me there? It's kind of a long story, Scott. Um, I've always, I always enjoyed singing. I always enjoyed singing. Um, the first gig I ever did wasn't a singing gig. Well, I don't even know if you can call it a gig. I, I started playing instruments in school and I sang in the chorus in school. But uh, I was uh, more of a jock then. And, uh, but, you know, I, you know, just dabbled in music. And one day, uh, this girl was dating this guy. And uh, after, a, after a basketball game, I was hanging out with some friends drinking beer, underage, of course. And the guy heard me singing. And he, asked, he said, uh, Hey man, you sound good. Uh, I, you know, I play guitar in a band. I'm looking for a guitar. I'm, I'm looking for a singer. And he said, "Come and audition." And um, you know, I said, "Yeah, okay." And I never showed up. And he came to my house and told my mother. And my mother said, "You told this guy you were gonna go and meet him." And I'm like, "Yeah." She said, "Well, he came by here. You need to go there, or you need to tell him that you're not going to do it." And I ran into the guy, and he cussed me out. He cussed me out, and that uh, was kind of like a challenge to me. I think I, I didn't go because I was a bit nervous. I was nervous about doing it. So eventually I did. I uh, got on the subway and went to Jamaica, Queens, and auditioned for this band. The band's the name of the band was Total Eclipse, and they're still playing around still till today. And uh, I auditioned for the band, and a week later, a week after I auditioned for that band, I was in Media Sound on Fifty Seventh Street, probably one of the premier studios at the time, Media Sound, and I was in Media Sound recording an album with this band. Still wasn't sure. I was still playing ball, got to high school. And uh, 
there's a guy on the team. He's a, he was older than I was, and I don't think he liked me because, you know, we had to go to practice at six thirty in the morning, seven o'clock in the morning before before class started. And uh, after practice, the coach hey Fowler come to my office and he says, "What's this I hear about? You know." after practice because we've had two practice one in the morning seven o'clock in the morning and in the afternoon at the end of school and then i would leave there and i'd go to this band rehearsal so he says what's this i hear about you playing with the band and i said yeah i you know playing with the band you should come check it out he said no i won't be doing that and he said and you need to make a choice you're either going to play ball or you're going to sing with this band, but you're not going to do both. And I, I thought he was kidding. And I, I do, I remember saying to him, are you serious? And he said, yeah, I'm serious. And I stood there in his office and I started crying. And I looked at him. I, I was just, I couldn't believe he gave me that ultimatum. And I looked at him and I said, fuck you. And I quit. I stopped playing ball. And um, I stopped playing ball, which was really hard for me because I played ball, you know, most of my young life. And I play a lot of guys that I played ball with actually ended up playing pro ball. And so I started singing with this band on a regular basis. I'm sorry, you're, t you're talking uh, what sport? Basketball. 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 And uh, so I uh, started singing with the band on a regular basis. And, you know, one thing led to another. I uh, left school. I, well, I didn't leave school. Um, a lot of the guys in the band were older than I was. In fact, all of them were older than I was. And uh, uh, most of them were attending Queens College, which had a really good music program. And I had been playing trombone in school. So I, um, I started going with them. They would take me to, uh, to York College to a jazz workshop so I could you know, brush up on my trombone because the band had a full horn section. Well, with me, it was a complete horn section. And uh, I went to Queens College for a little while, I don't, you know, which was not an easy college to get in, but I guess I was doing okay in school and I was accepted to Queens College. And maybe after a year and a half there, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I had no money. I had no money and I, you know, on the weekends, you know, I was playing with the band and I was making, some, you know, a little bit of coin and I, uh, you know, I just, I, I needed to do something. I needed to do something. So I remember being on the, being on the train going home and, and I was praying to myself and I decided that I would leave college and pursue music full time. And, you know, one thing happened after another. And there it is. That's, you know, pretty much how 
that's pretty much how it started. But again, my first gig, the first the first time I ever played in front of an audience, I played upright bass. I also played upright bass in the school orchestra. And uh, growing up, I heard a lot of salsa. My older brother brought those records home. You know, back then, you know, I, I grew up in a black Puerto Rican neighborhood predominantly and you know, salsa, we listen to salsa like we listen to Top 40. And so uh, there was a, a piano player, a Latin piano player in the neighborhood by the name of Freddie Crespo. And uh, he, was doing a, he was doing a show in the neighborhood at the community center. And he asked me to come and play. And that was the first time that I performed in front of people. I played upright bass. So, so you were able to read music and you had that background? Yeah, I was able to read music at that time. Uh -huh. And uh, I'm sure that foundation helped you down the line. Um, when, when did it become apparent to you that you were going to really focus on singing? And, and who are some of your uh, singing influences? Um, well, when I uh, joined the band Totally Clips, I was the lead singer. I was the front man of the band. So, um, and uh, some of my influences, I, I, I would have to say I was influenced by everything that I heard. Um, you know, as a kid, you know, my mother used to make me take a nap and she would always have the radio on. It was always on a of course, it was on WWRL, but some days it wasn't. Some days it was Cousin Brucie. Some days it was Wolfman Jack. So I listened to I, I you know I listened to music just all my life. I played my mother and my father's records, and you know they had records like. Um, you know, Eddie Taylor, J.B. Lenoir, Mahalia Jackson, you know, um, Joe Tex, uh, Lloyd Price, you know, a lot of old, a lot of soul, blues and gospel. But uh, I think from the radio, I was listening to a lot of rock and roll on the radio and it's funny, when I was growing up, you know, in my neighborhood, you listen to soul music. And I would never let anybody in the neighborhood know that I liked that rock and roll I was hearing. Because if you said something like that, they'd look at you and say, man, that's white boy music. But I was grooving on white boy music, as well as the music that I grew up listening to. So, you know, my, the influences is, uh, influence is pretty vast. Uh, uh, you know, I wanted to be one of the Temptations. That was my favorite singing group growing up. Um, Chuck Berry, you know, I did a mean Chuck Berry. I did a mean duck walk. My dad used to give me money to do it in front of family members. And uh, funny enough, the first the first album that my dad ever bought home and gave to me, he gave it to me, was Rolling Stones, 12 by 5. So it's uh, kind of ironic that I end up spending as much time with them as I have. Hmm. Wow. 
Yeah, well, definitely can, you know, hear all that diverse influence throughout your career. Uh, it's clear that you took that all in like a sponge, you know, yeah. and distilled it, has, it out in your own way. It um, has served me well. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the irony is, I mean, those white boy groups, they were redoing black music in most cases anyway. So This is true. Yeah. This is true. But, you know, a lot of a lot of people from my neighborhood, they didn't know that. Exactly. So is there any uh, one or two, I mean, you mentioned the Temptations, or is there, you know, a couple of singers that you really sort of emulated or, you know, really kept your ear glued to? Um, probably uh, David Ruffin, Sly Stone, Otis Redding, Joe Tex, Don Covey, which, you know, was a, a huge uh, influence on Mick Jagger. Um, yeah, I grew up listening to Don Covey. You know, as a matter of fact, my Don Covey used to try to date my mom. <laughs> so as a little kid, Don Covey was in my house. Hmm. I remember I remember him being there. He always wore a hat, you know. And he was kind of a flashy dresser. I remember one day, you know, he had come to my house a couple of times and I remember my mother asking me, "Honey, what you think about him? You like him?" I said, "No, ma, I don't like him." <laughs> <laughs> His singing's okay, but he's got to go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody was good enough for mom. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, you know, I, I became aware of you through, um, you know, Future Shock and Herbie Hancock. Um, mm. What should uh, viewers know about your career prior to that? Um. Before I joined Herbie Hancock, how, how I got there, uh, you know, the band, The Total Eclipse. Uh, one of the guys in The Total Eclipse, you know, I had been there, I had been there and I think, you know, my, um, my time there had run its course or it was getting close to to the end of that and there was a drummer that came in uh, with and played with the Total Eclipse. His name was Stephen Brown. And uh, Stephen Brown left the Total Eclipse. And I was kind of on my way out also and he um, he, uh, he came and he and uh, he called me and, you know, he had an idea about, you know, putting some, you know, guys together. And he introduced me to, he introduced me to some new cats and we formed a band. Myself, Stephen Brown and, you know, some other guys that you probably wouldn't know by name. And, and we formed the band called the New York City Peach Boys. Um, and 
the New York Peach, New York City Peach Boys. I had my first hit record with the New York City Peach Boys. It was a song. There were two songs called uh, "Don't Make Me Wait" and "Life Is Something Special." And um, we were we were supported by a really well-known DJ, the first celebrity DJ by the name of Larry Levan. And I couldn't walk out of my house without hearing those songs on the radio. It was it was surreal. I mean, you know, you want to get heard on the radio, but when when it happens like it had happened, I mean, people in the neighborhood were calling me by the title of the song. They weren't calling me Bernard. They said, "Yo, don't make me wait." <laughs> I mean, it played twenty. Four seven, and it still plays till this day. My daughters call me. My daughters, who are like twenty five and twenty six, and live in New York, they'll call and say, "Dad, you're on the radio again. You're on the radio again." <laughs> so that was the the first that was uh, the first uh, project that you know really uh, got me uh, some attention, and you know, you know, like uh, I'm sure you know, bands. The, the hardest thing to keep together in the music business is a band. Things started going wrong in the band. And just as things started going wrong, I got a call from, from a cat named Roger Trilling. Roger Trilling used to work with Bill Laswell. He was like Bill Laswell's man Friday at the time. And he called me and I went and I met with him and I met with Bill and Bill had a song, you know, Bill was doing material at the time with Michael Beinhorn. And um, they were doing, they were, they were, they were doing an album. Uh, that album ended up being uh, the album called One Down. And they asked me to sing, to sing. And I sang it, I sang on that album and uh, by the way, that was that was one that if it might have been the very first recording, if not close to the very first re very first album that Whitney Houston had been on. Whitney Houston sang a song on that album. It was me. I sang, I think, maybe two songs, three, two, Nona Hendrix and Whitney Houston. Hmm. She must have been a teenager. Oh yes, she was a youngster, and um, and I uh, soon left the Peach Boys. I soon left the Peach Boys. I was doing uh, material, and during that time, uh, Bill Laswell, uh, you know, he was doing a lot of production, and he was producing a record for Herbie. And that record ended up, the album was Future Shock, and the uh, record that most people would be familiar with would be uh, Rocket. Yeah. What, that was. But now, what, what, what was your impression of Bill Lassell when you first met him? Because he's been so prolific, but he's such an enigma. And I've even had him on the show, uh -huh. and I still don't know you know, that much about him, even after having him on the show, because he kind of keeps things close to the vest, at least he did. With yes, me. he does. He did then, and he does now. But I like, I love Bill. 
I love Bill. Um, Bill, I, I, I've said this before to people. Bill split my head right down the middle. Bill turned me on to artists and music that I had never heard before. He took me out of where I was and introduced me to a, a whole nother world. And, and I, I gravitated to him and I stuck, I mean, whenever I knew he was in the studio, whether I was working or not, I'd go just to sit there and listen to what he was doing and watch how he was doing it. He was a master of taking people from different genres and putting them together and making it work. Just incredible, incredible. And, you know, people, I mean, he introduced me to people like, um, you know, Sonny Chirac and Ardo Lindsay. Um, uh, you know, Fode Muso Suso. You know, uh, Peter Bratzman, the German sax player. I mean, I, he just turned me on to so much music. And as a matter of fact, the first time, the first time I ever left the country was with Bill. <laughs> the first time I left New York and went to Europe was with Bill. And uh, that was behind the uh, the, the uh, One Down album, material, One Down album, that, uh, which I think did very, very good for them. And also, it was the beginning of hip hop. Mm -hmm. Bill was, I think Bill was one of, if not the first, one of the first, uh, one of the first cats to produce early hip hop early rap stuff and so yeah um bill bill was a you know it's a little strange because he bill was really quiet he was really quiet till you really got to meet him and if he liked you 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 know he you you would he would talk with you 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 can talk with him you can have conversations and they're always good conversations about music and you know, listening to him tell stories about, you know, the different people that he had played with. So anyway, during that, uh, after the material went down, Bill started producing these tracks for Herbie Hancock. And um, I, you know, I had to leave the Peach Boys. It was just toxic. It was toxic. And I was feeling kind of lost and you know, here comes Bill. He get, he calls me and he says, hey, come to the studio. I want you to sing on these on uh, on this Herbie Hancock record. And there was a slight problem. I was under contract. And he knew it. And uh, he said, it's OK, come on, we'll fix it. So I went to the studio and I sang on the tracks and I used an alias. I used an alias and I sang in a falsetto mm -hmm. for the title song of the record, Future Shot. Kind of and an homage uh, to, to Curtis, right? That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. So when when Rocket came out, Rocket, you know, as we know, was huge, huge record. And uh, again, I got a call from Bill and said, hey, man, he asked me, he said, you hey, man, you want to go on the road with Herbie Hancock? <laughs> I thought he was kidding. He wasn't kidding. And I, I went, I met Herbie. The next thing I know, I'm on the road touring with Herbie Hancock. I'm on I'm I'm on the road touring with Herbie Hancock, you know, singing of course, because a a lot of the vocal, a lot of the vocal, a lot of the samples on that record, they were me. So I would I would you know I was and also, the first uh, the first sample keyboard Herbie had, which was you know the Fairlight. So that was my gig. I sang and played samples on the Fairlight, mm. and it was a it was it was a great experience. It was a you know long, we we toured for we toured for several years. Herbie won a Grammy. That was his first you know Grammy win, which is crazy. But yeah, <laughs> yes, which is crazy, and you know um, uh, you know. But something I remember about that time was, you know, um, you know, the mix, the the mixed feelings from the jazz world about that record Herbie had done. He was always doing that to the jazz crowd. Yes. Oh boy, they gave him shit for it. But you know what? He won the Grammy, didn't he? I but I remember seeing the uh, video of uh, you in Japan with that band uh-huh yeah yeah very cool and uh was that the video where i walked on walked out into the audience i'm not sure you're wearing i think like a white striped kind of jacket or something and um you're playing percussion and doing some songs and right yeah you were um it impressed me that you were um so dynamic out front doing the vocals i mean you were really like taking over like you were the leader of the whole band when you went out for your spotlight singing? Mm, well, it's kind of hard to, uh, it's kind of hard to sing lead and stand in the background. Uh, and I don't think that would have been, I don't think that would have been very entertaining. Well, no. <laughs> but, you and, know, it's still Herbie's got the marquee Yes. But you definitely had your spotlight. Right on. And, you know, you know, that's, you know, no matter what, you know, what spotlight was shining on me during that time, it was still the Herbie Hancock show. It was the Herbie Hancock show, you know, and it was, uh, you know, it's funny because, um, you know, when, uh, this is this is really strange. Uh, when I got that gig, we were doing uh, we were doing a show in New York on the pier. I think it was a Pepsi, you know, pier show or something. And some of the guys I grew up with in my neighborhood were at that show, and I was sitting on the on the tour bus 
and one of my best friends, you know, I saw him and I grabbed him and I took him on the tour bus and, and he reminded me of something. You know, I used to go to his house and we used to listen and I used to read albums and we'd listen to music. And he said to me, Bernard, I remember being in the living room. We were listening to Herbie and I said to him, I can't wait till I'm good enough to sing with Herbie Hancock. Wow. Prophetic. When he said that, I said, oh, I remembered that day. I remembered it clear as clear as day. I said, man, you are right. I remember that day, Earl. I remember that day. And there I was singing with her, you know, fronting Herbie's band. Incredible. Wow. Incredible. And and then you you also uh, made an appearance on the next record too, right? Yes. Uh, uh, that was... Uh, sound System? Sound System, that's right. I, uh, I, I sang the single, I think, it, People Are Changing was the name of the single. Uh, uh, yes. And, I almost forgot that. Yeah, and and it was around that same time when you somehow got uh, connected with Mick Jagger, and he did a solo record. And is that the correct well, timeline? It was. It was during that time. You know, I I think uh, I'd been on the road with Herbie uh, maybe a year, year and a half or so, and. Uh, We had a break from the tour. We had a break from the tour, and uh, before the tour, I had got an apartment, my first apartment, and um, I walk into the apartment, and the telephone rings, and it's Bill. Bernard, hey, Bill, how you doing? I said, cool, man, cool. What you I said, I just walked in the I just walked in, in the in the door. He said, go to the airport. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. I just walked in the door, Bill. I just walked in the door. And he said, Okay, go back to the airport. I said, You serious? Yeah, go to the airport. There's a ticket there. There's a ticket for you. Grab my, I had 10 days off, picked up my, I called the cab, picked up my suitcase, went back downstairs, got into the cab, went to the airport, went to the desk, and I said, uh, I think you have a ticket for me. And she said, well, what's your name? I gave the woman my name. She said, where are you going? And I said, I, I don't know. <laughs> she said, you don't know where you're going? I said, no. So she looked up my name. She said, you're going to London. You got a first class ticket, you're going to London. I'm like, oh, okay. So I get to London, Bill picks me up from the airport. He doesn't tell me why I'm there. We get into a limousine, we're driving through London, we pick up a journalist, we do an interview, put the journalist out, we continue through London, we pull up to a house, get out the house, he knocks on the door, Big black dude opens the door, 
we walk in, I walk in behind him, and the guy says, he's in there. I still don't know why I'm there. Who the, who the, who is he? Bill walks in, I walk in behind him, and there's a guy, I can see a guy sitting on the floor. I can only see his back. So I walk in, Bill walks in front of him and says to him, he says, hey man, this is the guy I've been telling you about. This is Bernard Fowler. And this is, and I'm not making it, this is not exaggerated at all. The guy turned around and it was Mick. And I looked at Bill he never said anything. The only thing he, uh, I remember uh, as we're driving through London, I, we're talking about all kinds of music and he said to me, he said something like, hey man, you like the Stones? And I said, oh man, I love the Rolling Stones. First record my dad ever bought for me was a Rolling Stone record. And he said, and he like kind of chuckled and we kept talking. So again, I'm in the room, Mick turns around and he looks up at me. Bill leaves the room. And I'm standing there. <laughs> and Mick says, hey, come down here on the floor. He had a guitar in his hand. He said, come down here on the floor. And, you know, he's strumming and I'm humming. And, and he, and I was there maybe an hour, maybe two hours or so. I like again, I just arrived, and so he gave me a cassette. He gave me a cassette to listen to of what we were gonna be working on the next day. And I just happened to have a Fostex four-track cassette recorder. So when I got back to the room, I did all these vocal arrangements for these songs. The next day we go to the studio and, and uh, you know, they're playing the songs and Mick says, you know, you know, we're going to work on this song, whatever song it was. And I said, okay, cool. Before we do that here, let, let me play this for you. And I gave him the four track cassette recorder and he hit play and he's listening to it. And he looked at me, he said, you did all of this after I left after you left me. I said, Yeah. And he said, Okay, let's do that then. We're gonna do that. And I went in and that was uh She's the Boss. That was how that was my introduction to Mick Jagger. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so that Bill story of that by the way, Scott, that story will be in the book. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. So Bill was just trying to like, like freak you out or just, he was trying to. And you know what? I don't even Bill. I don't, I don't even know if Bill even gave it a second thought. <laughs> uh, you know, cause at that time he was doing so much. He was working on so much music. It was, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, conversation, just moving along. But I guess at some point, he, 
I guess, you know, Mick wanted, he was looking for somebody to sing with, you know, or somebody to help him with some vocal stuff. And, you know, Mick suggested, suggested me and there I was. And, and the producer in that project was now Rogers, right? No, well, no. it was both, Bill, Bill and Nile. Okay. Mm-hmm. So did you also meet Nile at that time? No, no. Uh, I only worked on the tracks that that Bill did. Okay. They they didn't work together. They worked separately. All right. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, I mean that that sowed the seeds of this career long relationship with Mick and the other guys in the band. How how did that evolve and develop from there? Well, I didn't. During that time, I, I the only one that I met, the only one that I met was Mick. Okay, so after, okay, I did Mick's album and I went back with Herbie for another year and a half to do the road. I get off the road and uh, someone called me and said, Hey Bernard, man, I heard that. I heard that Mick Jagger has been in town looking for a male vocalist. Have you heard me? I'm like, no, I've not. I've not heard from him or anybody. No one's. No one's called me about it. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know anything. And so at that time, I was. Uh, I was getting ready to do uh, uh, um, some dates in the south of France. It was kind of an all-star band, you know, you know, you know, the cats, a bunch of guys from New York that played with the big boys, you know, um, and it was being put together uh, by Carmine, Carmine Rojas. Carmine Rojas, bass player, played with Rod Stewart, and uh, uh, and he played with David Bowie for for years. And so we were at SIR rehearsing, and I took a break to go to the to the bathroom, and so I walk out, and there's an entourage coming down the corridor. And in the middle of the entourage was Mick. And I, you know, I kind of, you know, we kind of caught eyes. And, uh, you know, I said hello and he, you know, nod. And I remember going back to uh, the room I was rehearsing at for this show in the South France. I, 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 I walked in and I said, I said to a karma and I said, you know, I just saw Mick. I just saw Mick Jagger walking up the hallway and said, "He, he kind of act like he didn't know me," and it, you know, kind of pissed me off. So I, uh, Carmine said, "I ah, don't worry about it." You know, Carmine, Carmine, Carmine's like my big brother. Carmine, you know, he's from New York. He's from Brooklyn, and I used to go to Carmine's house to hang out with him and talk to him because Carmine was, 
one of the first guys that I ever knew that that had been on the road. You know, he played, you know, he was already, he was damn near season. He had played, he was part of LaBelle, you know, and he was doing David Bowie. And so as we're in there, you know, we start rehearsing. A girl walks in the room and, and asks, she said, is there a Bernard Fowler? And it's funny because nobody said anything. We're all looking at the girl. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I remember it was feeling like, who's this girl and why is she asking for Bernard Fowler? Who is this girl? And so finally I said, well, I'm Bernard Fowler. She says, Mick Jagger's looking for a male vocalist, you know, to, uh, you know, he's, he's doing a tour and he's looking for a male vocalist. And we'd like to know if you'd like to audition. And she gives me a tape with four songs on it and lyrics. And she leaves the room. And uh, he didn't say hello to me when I saw him in the corridor. Now he sends this girl in here to ask me to audition. I had sung already on his first solo album. So now I'm insulted. So when she left the room, I said to Carmine, I said, fuck that man. I said, I sang on his, I said, I did, I worked on his, on his solo record. What's this audition shit? I said, fuck that. I, I'm not going in there to audition. I'm not going to audition. And Carmine, being the big brother, grabbed me by the arm and took me in the corner of the, of the rehearsal room and gave me a talking to. And he said to me, quote unquote you fucking go in there and do that audition he said even if you don't take the gig go do the audition and he said you go in there and you kill him I went in the bathroom I put my Walkman on the songs were so they were stone songs that I was familiar with I, I was a, I'm a Rolling Stone fan. I was a Rolling Stone fan already. So I walk into the room, and of course he's got the hottest band. He's got shit hot band. Jeff Beck had just left. He had just left. So the band was English guy by the name of Richard Cuddle on keyboards, New York guy Philip Ashley on keyboards, Doug Wimbish on bass. Joe Satriani on guitar, Jimmy Rip on guitar, and I, I, I realized that they had been in the, you know, they had been auditioning, they had been in New York for quite some time, so they had, they auditioned a lot of, a lot of singers. So when I walk in the room, one of the guys looks at me and kind of crosses his arms and he looks at me and like like I could, the look on his face was oh fuck man we hit not again here's another one we got to do this shit again here's another guy 
you know, here's another singer, you know, that pissed me off more. <laughs> so I walked in, walked up on, you know, on the stage and they started playing, you know, these songs. And I channeled that anger. I channeled that anger and I was spitting fire. I spat fire at that audition. Like a crossfire hurricane. I was a fucking <laughs> crossfire hurricane. At the end of the last song, I gave them the tape, the lyrics. I left the room, went back to my room to rehearse. Five minutes later, the girl comes in and says, um, we'd like you to go on tour. We'd like you to, uh, you know, do the tour, the, the tour and uh, <coughs> rehearsals are going to be that, that, that. And I said, well, I, I ain't doing it. I can't do it. She said, excuse me. I said, no, I can't. I said, no, I can't do it. She said, well, when can you do it? I said, after I do my gig, after the gig, I'm here rehearsing. She left the room and she came back and she said, okay, we'll see you when you get back. So that was, that was uh, the, uh, my first uh, road work with Mick Jagger. And that was my introduction to Doug Wimbish. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.